Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The family of Sligo pensioner Tom Nyland, who was violently assaulted in his home, have shared harrowing details of what he endured at the hands of his attackers with Virgin Media News reporter Paul Quinn. What they did to him. How any human could do that to another. Russian military buildup on the Ukrainian border has led to serious concerns for the safety of the surrogate mothers. There we'll discuss the babies and the ability of Irish couples to travel in and out of the country under current regulations. And later, the Oscars go green. Eight nominations for Irish cinema. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. Family of the man fighting for his life following an attack in his county Sligo home say they're preparing for the worst. Tom Nyland remains in a critical condition after a gang of intruders forced their way into his home when he answered his front door. Well, speaking to Virgin Media News reporter Paul Quinn, Tom's cousin gave a harrowing description of the injuries the 73-year-old sustained and the following report contains graphic details that viewers may find upsetting. The brutal attack on pensioner Tom Nyland has left his family devastated and the local West Sligo community reeling. His cousin Michael says nothing could have prepared them for when they first saw the 73-year-old in his hospital bed. When you actually walk in and you see, I mean, you see the brutality of it, you know, it's almost, it is shocking. It's beyond what you would imagine. You know, you see things on television, people have been, you know, victims and, and so on. Uh, but actually, to, to actually see it for yourself, the reality of it, and to, to try, it was it almost impossible. You're trying to identify, is that really him? You know, his head, it was grotesque. It was, it was swollen. His eyes were closed, bruised, blood. You, you couldn't make it up. You know, um, shocking, very shocking. It's three weeks today since three masked men attacked and robbed Tom at his home in Screen. Despite his injuries, Tom managed to crawl to the busy road to raise the alarm. What did Tom remember about the attack? What was he able to tell you? He, he spoke about these fellas, um, like he, he kind of visualised, you know, he visualised the figures coming in, these three burly men, the shock of seeing some, somebody with balaclavas on. I mean, it's frightening in itself just to see an image of that. And um, just a barrage of blows and kicks. And
Michael is appealing for anyone who knows what happened to come forward. They're afraid too, you know. This is the problem, the fear in the country. This, you know, these terrorise, these people terrorise people. You know, they know what's going to happen. I mean, if they're able to do it to an innocent 73-year-old man, if they find out that somebody's given, given the game away on them, what's going to happen to them? You know, he did nothing to them. So, um, but hopefully that somebody, there is a guard, a confidential line. The guards are brilliant, you know. And for ye, I suppose, there's always that risk then of, of that phone call coming from, from the hospital or the Oh, we're or... dreading, we're dreading that. Um, we are prepared for it. I mean, if you, if you saw him, you'd wonder how has he survived up to now. Um, so it won't be a shock. But it would be wonderful if things turned for the good. But they won't, I don't think. What they did to him, how any human could do that to another. Tom's family now waiting for that phone call that no family ever wants to get. That was Michael Walsh speaking to our reporter, Paul Quinn. Uh, now here in studio to discuss the issue of rural crime is Fianna Fáil TD Neve Smith, Sinn Féin TD Martin Kenny and Sunday Times crime and security correspondent John Mooney. And um, we're very cognizant that there is a family right now really in a desperate situation, um, Tom's family, and, and we can only um, hope for the best and think about them at this time. Um, but Martin, I'll come to you first because this happened in your constituency. What have people been saying to you about the nature of this brutal attack I mean, and the fear around something like yeah. this happening? I suppose it really brings home to people the vulnerability of many people that live in rural isolated areas and uh, you know that there are people out there who can carry out an attack like this is absolutely horrendous. Uh, this man, an innocent man, going about his business, get a knock to the door and people come in like that and, and beat him and abuse him to the state that he's on, the, on the, the brink of death and it's, you know, everyone's heart goes out to him and to his family and to the community out there. But uh, I suppose really, you know, we, we, while thankfully, you know, we haven't seen too much of this in recent times, but it certainly has been something that we've had going on for a long number of years where we've had incidents around rural Ireland where people have been broken into and burgled and all of that and really we need to have you know uh, more guard the presence there's a whole lot of things that can be part of the solution here uh, and really I think it's about it's about prevention it's about detection and it's about deterrence as well and uh, that's the to me the three elements of this that we have to get right uh, while many people are, are complaining about you know rural guard stations closed down and that's certainly uh, I suppose something that people had there that was reassuring them that there was a guard yeah, station the visual, down the, the road idea the visual. That there was a local guard station you know at the same time I have to also understand that the guard they are out there in the community they are you know patrolling a lot of areas they but like take my constituency of Sligo Leitrim it's it's sparsely populated you have huge rural areas over a very very large part of the world where you're talking about you know 50 40 miles of an area square where people where guard they have to cover and it is difficult to do that and and that's another reality to it as well uh, we also of course have the deterrent aspect of it you know a lot of these people are repeat offenders they end up going to the courts they end up getting bail many of them go out and do the same thing while they're on bail you know and there's issues around all that that we need to deal with as well and the cycle you know, of crime the cycle of crime and how we can break that you know i was i was struck when i was looking at this story that people in this area in tom's area reported 14 break-ins 
in the locality in the past two months. So this was a community that was well aware that there, there, were, there were vulnerable people that were really under threat there. Um, and I doubt this area of Sligo is the only place around the country that's seeing a rise in crime now after a relatively quiet couple of years, probably because of the pandemic. Isn't it a worry that the perpetrators evidently believe that they're untouchable in this regard, Neve? It absolutely is, and it just kind of brought home. We've had so many, I suppose, tragic things happen in recent weeks, and to see this happen, but as John quite rightly alluded to earlier in our conversations before the show, it is happening, unfortunately, on a daily basis. But we are, I suppose, the difficulty is we are in an island uh, and most of, you know, where the population lives, well, the vast majority, particularly of older people, are in kind of rural <clears throat> rural net road networks that makes it very difficult, I suppose, for Garthi to police in the way they would in more urban areas. Um, but, I mean, the, 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 I suppose, the community alerts to Munch, Natira, all these people d- delivering panic buttons, all those kind of c- crime prevention things are hugely important. Is it properly resourced, that, that sort of crime prevention, um, the text alerts, the community? Is the funding in place to help people feel secure at a very local level? Yeah, well, we're actually ha- we had our estimates meeting with the Minister for Justice today and we actually went through those d- d- deliverables, those things that are actually happening on the ground. And uh, money has now been set aside to set up a uh, safety innovation community fund. But there are community alert organisations across the country. Yes, so how, how much, when you're looking at the funding and the breakdown of that funding yeah. it, for this area and rural crime and providing protection to people, how much funding yeah, is going well, for that? For that particular scheme, it's quite small. It's only a million, but it's just to get this initiative started up. And I suppose that's to encourage really community groups to be active and, I suppose, doing things on the ground within their communities. But I mean, there is uh, significant funds, I suppose, put aside, I don't have the figures in front of me now in terms of, you know, what they're rolling out. But the important... This is essentially sort of self-policing, getting the community to get involved Well, and it is, and to themselves. have that engagement with our, with our Gardaí. I mean, there was a time where we went through where there was no community guards. Uh, JPCs are now very active. And I suppose we have come through two what years of JPCs? COVID, uh, joint policing committees, and they're obviously working with our local authorities and Gardaí and people in, in the community to try, I suppose, and keep information flowing to our Gardaí, mm. uh, which can be hugely helpful for them in crime prevention. Yeah, is this um, a very important part when we're looking at rural crime, John, in, in terms of, you know, the challenge that we're talking about, you know, large areas, um, houses dotted around the place, people very isolated and feeling very vulnerable. Is that the sort of things that Neve's talking about? Is that the solution here? But is enough being invested in it to make people actually feel safe? Well, it is necessary. I think when you think about these issues, it's really important to remember that crime exists in rural Ireland. So a lot of these people who engage in this type of offending come from provincial towns, small towns, and they're part of the communities. Uh, There was a time that many of the gangs who engage in this particular type of offending came from urban areas, used the motorway network to travel around and reach targets, but sometimes come back. That that can be a problem to them because they're seen by cameras. They're be, they're, it's easy to intercept them, and indeed the guards have countless operations where they've uh, officers um, in high-speed cars uh, that are capable of pursuing uh, these criminals and these uh, mobile gangs quite quickly and quite effectively. So there's lots of different factors going on here. I think when you think about rural crime, you have to look at it as a kind of almost with a holistic approach to targeting it. Many people might think that community alert projects are irrelevant. They're not. They're very effective because sometimes it can alert um, detective units 
warning. It's the presence of criminals in an area. And it also gives the Gardaí the ability to monitor what's going on. Like, whoever carried out this particular attack, they're not sort of organised crime gang or anything like that. The amount of money in it's far too small. These are opportunistic okay. criminals that are, are pred predating on a very old man. All right. Well, a little earlier, I spoke to Vice President of the Garda Representative Association, Brendan O'Connor. I began by asking him about Garda resources in rural areas. No, Claire. We would say that the fundamental issue that's uh, hindering the progress of our members and our availability to provide the maximum service community is a lack of resources. And recent figures have shown us that actually the numbers of guards, the, the top line is actually falling in recent years. And that disproportionately impacts on rural communities because what happens is, first of all, the demographic of the guards in rural Ireland is generally a little bit more senior, so retirements would impact. And then when we have local management who are trying to spread the resources, what happens is that um, district headquarters stations will always be sucked the resources in to provide that basic fire brigade response service and often what we see is the rural communities that's stations in outlying areas with one or two personnel they're the ones that are lying vacant across rural Ireland officially they're not closed but they're not manned by a permanently allocated member and we think that's to the detriment of rural policing. While these serious crimes require serious investigations and specialist knowledge, a lot of the time the, the key piece of evidence or the key piece of intelligence that comes forward that give, gives a break is from people who have confidence and maybe know their local Garda who, and the local Garda knows who to ask and maybe people would say something in a passing conversation that looked out of sorts that they may not pick up a phone and ring a stranger sure. uh, 20 or 30 kilometres away. So Minister McEntee has said that additional Gardaí are being recruited, specifically looking at rural crime. Um, she talks about 120 came through Templemore only in the last few weeks. 800 will go through Templemore this year. And there's a specific operation to look at rural crime. Does that allay your concerns at all? No, it doesn't, because as I alluded to earlier... The recruits are very welcome and the association will always endorse and, and be very grateful of every single recruit that comes into the organisation. But as I say, the recruits take a long time to train and with the shortfalls on regular units across the country, that's where they're going to be deployed and they won't be out at patrolling autonomously in rural areas. The problem is that the people of Ireland have been sold a pup as far back as the last decade whenever we heard initially about smart policing, that policing wasn't about bricks and mortars, mm. that it was about communications, technology, equipment and response times and vehicles. Those things haven't materialised and okay. things haven't improved. Huge problem with driver training, a problem with access to vehicles in some areas. So we believe that there's a lack of investment and it's particularly hitting rural All communities. Right. And that was Brendan O'Connor speaking to me earlier on that. Like he was talking about the lack of a local Garda, the, the, the patrol being an issue there. Um, it seems to be at odds with what we're talking about when, when we talk about community policing and, and resources being put into that area. What's the truth of the matter? Like what are people actually seeing on the ground? Is there a sense that they don't have um, local Garda who are very accessible to them um, yeah, certainly in, in, in my experience of it, that's a complaint that people very often have, that they, they don't know the local guards the way they used to know them, and that it's, it's, it's different uh, structure now, the way it's put in place, that it's, it's, it's much more at arm's length than it once was. And it reminds me a little bit of, of the, you know, the, when the mental health services were changing out of being institutions, that everything was going to be provided in the community. They closed down the institutions, but there's very little in the community. And it's a bit like that with the Gardaí as well, that they kind of withdrew all the, the, the rural guards 
guard the stations and said, look, guard, they are going to be out on the beat and they're going to be seen and they're going to have cars and they're going to have all this technology and all that. It really isn't there yet anyway. And I, I think there's a, there's a huge amount of work to be done in resourcing to ensure that that can happen. And that's, uh, I, I think, you know, one of the key things that we need to do because I, when this happens now, I'm quite sure, with the help of God, this man lives and is, is okay and healthy and goes back and lives in his community again. Somebody will come out from a guard the Shiacon, a crime prevention officer, and we'll give him an advice and they'll tell him where to put a camera up and they'll tell him how to put locks on his doors and they'll tell him how to have alarms and they'll show him things that needs to be mm. done and they'll do that with other people in the community as well. But it's a bit like, you know, bolting the stable door when the horse is gone. That should be happening earlier on. We should have programmes in place now to get all of that done for elderly people who live. Yeah. And it's not just in rural areas, but in urban areas as well. There was a scheme here in Dublin recently, a pilot scheme in Dunleary Lot Down, for to, for to put locks and alarms and that in houses. And I think that should be spread all over the country. Sure. And it's one of the things that would make a big difference to reassure people. Now, there's so much more that needs yes. to be done in the criminal justice system. But if that were done initially, it would give people and a reassurance. <clears throat> and, a, and they would also have, you know, that thing where they would just have communication with on, a member of a on that issue, um, On that issue of pilot schemes that are being put in place, it is something that Helen McAtee did say we're working on three pilot areas and how we bring all the community together on this one. In terms of, you know, guard the presence being one thing, guard the response to such crimes. Like we're hearing anecdotally that other people who may have been victims of crime in the area had to wait, you know, a number of hours before Gardaí came to the scene. Um, in this instance, we believe it was quicker, but is guard the response an issue as well? when well, it comes to these attacks. There's two ways of looking at that, Claire, and sometimes people don't understand. When an incident like this happens, there's an immediate response to get help to the person who's been injured. But there's also, on all the channels, right across that uh, division, patrol cars, detective units, armed response units will be looking for the perpetrators of that. And the effort it primarily becomes one of tracking the people involved in that and trying to intercept them before they possibly injure someone else. So sometimes it's not a matter of how quickly some uh, police unit can get to a burgled house and it's very distressful mm. for the people that this has happened to. But in most occasions, particularly a really serious incident like this, there's every effort imaginable being trying to locate the, uh, the people that may be involved in that, such as monitoring motorways, such as checking the whereabouts of various people. Because, again, the officers who are turning up to provide assistance to Mr Lyle will be very aware of the injuries sustained and will be trying to... what we what police uh, refer to as house prime suspects, where were they, can we locate their movements, where they are, and that is the prime effort at that time. Um, I know when rural crime is discussed, often there's a fear um, for the farming community. They're living in isolated places and they have very expensive equipment often on site, um, which makes them targets. Are you hearing more from people in your constituency about this sort of crime being on the up again? We're talking about post-pandemic. We did see a big lull, but there is a sense that it's, it's coming back now. Yeah. The cost of living, of course, plays <coughs> into all of this, Neve. Yeah. Um, is, there, is there a fear there in the farming community in particular about what's happening? I think there always has been, Claire, and pri prior to the pandemic, unfortunately, we've sadly seen where a lot of farmers would have lost tractors. And of course, I come from the border constituency where there is no border, no visible, and that has always been huge encouragement mm -hmm. for cr criminals to move vehicles and equipment right across the border. But uh, some time ago, particularly around the Kevin Lunny case, um, the armed response unit was introduced in the border area, and it has made a huge, significant difference and dent, I suppose, in, in, in the level of crimes. And 
and it has created that visible presence for people in the community right across the border area. So that, that is, I, I suppose, one of the responses that has happened to that. But in relation to the farming uh, aspect, of it, I'm afraid that has been there, continues to be there. I was, as I said, glad to hear Minister... Um, McEntee saying that there's 800 more recruits coming through and I think mm. going back to Martin's point really importantly there's 1100 personnel being put into positions now within Garda stations because I know for quite some time we felt they've been kind of sucked into doing administrative work and they want to be out in the beat and people want to see them out in yeah, the beat. Yeah that's certainly one of the criticisms is desk duty preventing yeah. um, Garda from being you know a visible presence there yeah. um, and then as well a farming community will say you know how do we defend ourselves against this what do we do and we talk about the cycle of crime and the fact that if people are caught, the perpetrators don't seem to serve a long time for what they've done as well. So in terms of preventative measures and as well, I guess, the fear that the, if they do, you know, if there is self-defence involved, that they themselves will face prosecutions, that's also a real fear, isn't it? Well, I think we have to come down hard and heavy on, on these criminals who have, you know, committed crimes against vulnerable people across the, the, the country. And, I mean, as Martin has said too, you know, we see a lot of them out on bail again and committing further crimes. Is there going to be a review of all that? Like, we've talked so much about you know, sentencing and, and you know, in this area. Like, is there going to be an active review of, of the sentences that are handed well, down? Well, I would certainly hope so. I, I think, like, not just this event, but events we've seen over yeah. the, the coming weeks has certainly shone a lot light on all of that. And, you know, it, it would be... Um, remiss me not to think of Shane O'Farrell and, and his death and it really it was a murder um, committed on the roadside in County Monaghan and again okay. the perpetrator of that murder was somebody who was out on bail. All right um, um, you know another thing that's sort of been brought up from a community level is CCTV yeah. and communities want to put this in place and sure. then they've been told there are GDPR issues around yeah. that. Yeah. Is anything being done to combat that? Well, Martin? we actually had the Minister in today, in fairness, Neve asked a question, the Minister respected that. And yeah, it, it, is, it is a huge issue because when a lot of these cameras were put into places, it was under older legislation and then GDPR legislation came in and the change came in and they found they were foul of this, this new law. And there's huge issues in that because the local authorities were the ones that funded them and put them in place and the Gardaí were supposed to be monitoring and then there was issues as to who was responsible. And yeah. in many places, and we've seen an, is an issue in Limerick recently, where they actually had to shut them off in an area which was really a crime, a crime black spot, you know, and it is something that we need to get a, a real handle on because they can be a very efficient and effective tool. And I know that in areas where we have serious problems where it, with uh, uh, drug addiction and drug dealing happening in, in our inner city areas where the cameras are up and they have been very effective. But they can also be very effective in, in rural areas and in small provincial towns as well yeah. because it, it is something that is... They are all the time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a guard on the, if you like, watching every, every day, 24-7. And before we go on this, John, if there was one thing or one focus you think that should be you know, in place now in order to you know, make things better, make communities feel safer, and to try and clamp down on this crime that we know is on the rise again, um, what, what do you think it could be? Um, I hate to be pessimistic, but there's no real uh, panacea to uh, an issue like this. Crimes happen. They're horrendous for the victims, they're horrendous for their extended families. But we have lots of legislation. The guards have pretty much uh, a fairly decent amount of resources. They also um, have the technical ability to do all sorts of investigations that in bygone years were impossible. So these are issues that happen because of problems within mm. society, be it drug addiction, be it uh, other types of offending and, and other problems that are in society. So it's just important that they're investigated thoroughly. That, that is the main thing okay. um, that I think Drew Harris and people like All that right. would be... Uh, 
Keen okay, um, and just to clar clarify that case that um, Neve Smith was referring to was that of Shane Farrell, who was a cyclist who was uh, killed by a driver while out on bail. My thanks to the panel tonight. After the break, what does the future hold for international surrogacy in Ukraine? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Now, the Department of Foreign Affairs is to offer special diplomatic assistance to Irish couples expecting babies to be born in Ukraine in the coming months. Here in studio now to discuss this is Fine Gael Senator Mary Siri Carney, Business Post political correspondent Daniel Murray and surrogacy lawyer Annette Hickey. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, to come to you first, Mary, on this issue and a lot of worried families out there. You're currently liaising with affected families and with the Department of Foreign Affairs because we know of this, you know, crisis on the Russia-Ukraine border um, and the fears, obviously, for families there as they're going through their surrogacy journey. Yes. What can you tell us about what the families are hearing and the kind of supports they're receiving? Well, well there, are, there are a number of things that the families are hearing. Throughout the, the pregnancy, uh, they have been in regular contact with their, their surrogate mother. Uh, so they're hearing about normality on the ground in Ukraine. People are still getting up, going to work in the morning. They are leaving their children to crash. They're uh, going about their daily lives. And surrounding them is this increased tensions and the, the news cycle being a, a fairly dramatic one mm -hmm. while they live their normal lives. So you can imagine any pregnancy is uh, anxious, particularly as you're coming towards the end, uh, the context of, of Ukraine and the, the could-bes or the could-not-bes in it uh, heightens that anxiety. So uh, we, we put a call out two weeks ago uh, for to ensure that everybody was registered with the Irish Embassy in Kiev, uh, the Irish Embassy of, of Ukraine, and also with the Department of Foreign Affairs, just so that the department could be appraised of numbers, were able to uh, put in the logistics and to ensure that they have, okay. have planned for every... So how many families are, are potentially affected by this? There, there's a minimum of 14 families uh, between now and May. Okay. Uh, and then there are others at various cycle, various stages in their pregnancy beyond that. But, uh, but for now, the, the focus, I suppose, is on, on those who are uh, imminently in, in, in the position where they may have a baby going and to be born. And have those couples been told they can travel to Ukraine? Um, you know, when the pregnancy is coming to an end and, and they want to be united with their baby. 
Well, they, at, at this moment in time, the advice is uh, that non-essential travel should be avoided, but it is essential to go and to, to, to meet with your baby and bring the baby home. Um, but the, the department has been speaking with these families. We've put them all in, in touch with each mm. other. Uh, and I've cross-referenced with the department to ensure that everyone was registered and so that they get the maximum of support. And the, and the Department of, of Foreign Affairs they are very experienced, and that's a very important message. They're very experienced all of the time throughout the world. Mm -hmm. Our consulates are dealing with people in crisis situations uh, all of the time, uh, and the department has a lot of experience, so they, they will bring that experience to this situation and to just to reassure families that, that yep. they, they have considered a number of contingencies. Reassurance being, mm -hmm. being the big thing right now. Um, Daniel, you've reported extensively on this issue around surrogacy in Ukraine. Um, nearly all Irish surrogacies are taking place in Ukraine um, according to you know research around it and what's happening uh, why why is that do you think I think it's a, it's a couple of reasons. It's one of the few places in the world where commercial surrogacy for foreign couples is actually legal. So commercial surrogacy, different to what we call altru altruistic surrogacy, is where you go and actually pay for another woman to have a baby for you. And most jurisdictions in Europe completely ban it for, for foreign couples. And actually most countries around the world ban it for, for foreign couples as well. Ukraine is one of the few, few locations where you're able to do that. And um, there are other locations like Canada and the USA where you're able to, to, to go and avail of commercial surrogacy surrogacy as well, but costs are, are very prohibitive. You'd be talking about close to €100,000 Euro, uh, to be able to avail of services there. In Ukraine, it's closer to kind of 25000 30000 so it's a more affordable route for people as well. So they're the reasons likely that so many are travelling there. OK, so cost being an issue, what's regulation like in the country? There's effectively no regulation in the country. Um, the way that a surrogacy is regulated is through a kind of a civil contract between parties. So it would be between the surrogate mother and the agency, between the agency and the intending parents. But in terms of an overarching legal infrastructure, kind of regulating and creating standards, uh, there's very little uh, in, in the country at the moment. Okay, Annette, um, to come to you on that in the area of regulation, um, when parents uh, in this instance, it, it, firstly, is cost an issue? Is that why many couples that you represent are opting for Ukraine? Obviously, cost is an issue, but just to uh, correct just one or two um, matters in the um, article, uh, the article refers to the... Sorry, this is... In Mr Murray's article in about, surrog yeah, about surrogacy, where um, Irish couples are pursuing international surrogacy. 44 emergency travel certificates were issued uh, to Irish couples returning from the Ukraine last year. We actually don't know how many Irish couples have pursued surrogacy in Canada and the USA because the difference there is that the couples will travel home with their baby. If their baby is born in Canada, they come home with a Canadian passport. If they're born in the USA, they come home with a USA passport. So in fact, the only figures we have are the figures for where emergency travel certificates are issued by the Department of Foreign Affairs. So I think it's something we really need to look at to see how large the numbers are of families uh, that are in this country through surrogacy and whether that is surrogacy, domestic surrogacy, um, co you know, mm -hmm. families who, where surrogacy has been pursued in England, USA, Canada, Greece, there's various other countries. Cost-wise, um, uh, the cost of surrogacy in the Ukraine at the moment um, figures I would have approximately you're looking at between 40 and 50,000 euros. Canada you're looking at maybe about 70 to 80,000 euros and the USA then it's roughly it's in excess of 150,000 euros. It's a huge euros. amount of money isn't it for couples? It's a huge amount of money particularly when you're talking about these are the couples um, that are pursuing surrogacy in my experience that I've worked with are ordinary Irish citizens from every county in the country. 
These are the people who go to the Ukraine. Commercial surrogacy, number one, is legal in the Ukraine since 2004. There's a criteria that the couples must meet. They must be a married heterosexual couple and that there's a medical need for them to go to the Ukraine. So that's where the woman cannot carry the child. These are women around the country listening tonight where they have had cancer treatments. Mm -hmm. um, it's cystic fibrosis, it's um, congenital heart disease, um, unexplained infertility, numerous miscarriages. So any time a couple come to me, they do not want to make that yes, phone call they're right, at, because they're it's at the, the end, end of the road. They're at the end of the yeah. road and they've come to that point. Just on the issue of, of regulation, um, Daniel, and, and I know that... You say, well, well, we've heard a lot about that story, about that the desperate want for couples to have a baby, but that the other side isn't being explored. And that's the ethical implications of all of this in a country like Ukraine, which is a very poor country. What are the ethical concerns around that? Because that's something that an Oireachtas committee will be looking at as well as they, as they look to, as we look to regulate for international surrogacy here. So yeah. what, what are those implications? So uh, the special Oireachtas committee that's been set up to look specifically at this it will be looking at all of these different issues so so it certainly will get the the attention that, that it needs and basically the gov the government had promised to legislate on assisted reproduction when it came into power back back in 2020 on a range of different issues including surrogacy uh, and early on in, in trying to to put together this assisted human reproduction bill they ran into trouble and they ran into trouble on the international surrogacy element of the bill and the reason they ran into trouble on it was that there was uh, opposing rights uh, that appeared difficult to meet simultaneously and those, three, those opposing rights were threefold. The first one was, as we've heard about uh, parents, intending parents in Ireland, who are seeking commercial surrogacies abroad, uh, and they're looking to, uh, to try and have the full uh, legal uh, recognition as, as parents here in Ireland. And as it stands, mm. not all parents ca can achieve that currently. The other right had to do with the actual children uh, born through surrogacy, and being able to meet their genetic uh, rights to, to genetic information, uh, to meet rights to their birth information, and as we've seen, uh, the Minister for Children just recently published legislation around birth information. So this is a, a very pertinent issue. And the final right had to do with the right of the surrogate woman and making sure that she had a right not to be exploited, not to be coerced uh, into these commercial uh, practices. And those three rights, they were finding it difficult to meet those three together. The final thing on it as well was that uh, they were moving to ban commercial surrogacy here in Ireland explicitly in this new bill. So you will not be able to pay for commercial surrogacy services here but at the same time they're looking uh, to put together an infrastructure that endorses commercial surrogacy Abroad. in other countries. Okay um, Mary on this matter because I know you're very involved in that in, in, in lobbying for change in this area because you went through a surrogacy journey um, and it, it happened in India mm -hmm. um, how was that experience for you when we talk about like the regulation in place those ethical concerns that that are brought up when it comes to surrogacy did you find um, difficulty at any point? Were there challenges there? Were there big decisions to be made? And did you have any concerns about making that decision? I think that in in any couple travelling for surrogacy at that point, no one chooses for someone else to carry their baby. They would rather give birth to their baby themselves. Uh, so any couple entering into, into a surrogacy arrangement, um, you carry out the best due diligence that you can and the lawfulness of the country that you're going to. Um, most couples have a very good relationship with their surrogate mother, this did, woman who is giving that have, precious. Did you embark, did you have that relationship that's there? We, we, we did in 
insofar it was possible, because obviously it was, it was a greater distance than there is in Ukraine. But if, you, if we look at the Ukrainian situation, a lot of Irish couples pre-COVID were able to go over for scans, uh, have traveled backwards and forwards, have continued relationship. A lot of the, the surrogate mothers are, are deeply offended by the characterization of them in, in recently printed mm -hmm. articles and the discussion in some of the public discourse here in Ireland. Uh, you know, so we, we have two distinct groups here. And what the, the, are their specific concerns? Because the, the element that is, is, is missing is their consent and the fact that they have given uh, freely, fully informed consent, that they have independent, uh, they've had independent legal advice in the process. So there, there are elements in place that have, have occurred. Mm. Uh, and so I'm not denying for one minute that there are uh, clinics that do not adhere to those standards. And our objective yeah. through, the, through the committee is to ensure that a set of standards is set in place yeah. for once Ireland now finally legislates, because in the absence of legislation, we have, if we were to even take Daniel's figures of 46 or so, there are children now who are approaching 18 years of age who don't have that legal relationship. Yeah, with. and the legal... So if we multiply that across, that's every parish, every county, yeah. every constituency throughout the country. There are people who don't have that legal relationship right. with their parents. Um, Annette, on that, just because I know that you represent a lot of families who are going to Ukraine, um, do you believe that there is regulate, like that, that increased regulation needs to be in place that while you would be very confident of maybe where you know you are directing people in, in terms of clinic, and care, that it's not the same across the board in countries like that? My opinion is I absolutely welcome the establishment of the Joint Directives Committee. I think regulation across the board, internationally and domestically, there's no regulation here in Ireland, um, domestic surrogacy. Surrogacy has been happening in Ireland for upwards of 30 years. So I think it is really, really important that the rights, interests and welfare of the children um, of surrogate mothers and intended parents, that they are protected throughout. So I think we've got the opportunity here, um, Claire, really to bring forward legislation that's going to be world class, that we bring in safeguards that protect everybody. The surrogate mother, her rights, interests and welfare, that is really, really, really important to intended parents. Um, and I think a message can be sent out right. to international surrogacy agencies and clinics that Ireland's not a soft touch, that we do put in safeguards. Okay. We are going to protect um, okay. the process. Briefly, uh, and briefly to you, Daniel, just when we're talking about the, the Ukraine-Russia crisis and what we're seeing over there, um, what, is the, what are you hearing about the concern on the ground about you know, families that could, could be impacted by all of this? Yeah, there, there is concern on the ground, but there's amazing work being done by the likes of Mary Siri and by the likes of Annette and the Department of Foreign Affairs to help couples out. As we understand it, there's around 14 babies due to be born between now and May, and the Department of Foreign Affairs are going to offer full assistance to help get couples into the country and get them out of the country. Very similar to what happened at the beginning of the pandemic when there was travel restrictions. So the Department of Foreign Affairs have experience on this front. Yeah, and we know in that instance, all um, the babies did come to Ireland in that case mm -hmm. and we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to the panel after the break. Irish Eyes on Hollywood as Oscar nominees are announced. Stay with us. Welcome back. All eyes were on Hollywood today as the nominations for the 94th Academy Awards were announced. The Lost Daughter star Jesse Buckley and Belfast Kenneth Branagh, Kieran Hines and Van Morrison are among the nominees for this year's Oscars. Well, joining me now to discuss this is showbiz editor for the Irish Daily Star, Sandra Mallon. 
and from San Francisco by US correspondent Ira Spritzer. And Ira, if I could come to you first. Um, you know, a big day always in the Hollywood calendar and the power of the dog, um, which aired, of course, on Netflix, leading the pack. Well, very exciting day here in California as the Academy Awards trying to reclaim uh, some of the magic uh, that it perhaps has lost a little bit in years past. Last year specifically, uh, the ceremony was a bit diminished because of the coronavirus pandemic. And you mentioned The Power of the Dog leading the way. That is a film produced by Netflix. And uh, that streaming service had a, tw a 27 Oscar nominations this year, uh, the most of any studio. So really an indication there of where Hollywood is going. But uh, The Power of the Dog, a Western uh, in, in style, but uh, a movie that also deals with uh, very modern themes and, and really widely critically acclaimed. So no surprise there uh, that Academy voters have, uh, ha have nominated that. Yeah, not just the power of the dog. Of course, we have plenty of Irish interest there too. And Belfast um, is showing pretty, pretty highly in, in the nominations. Um, all eyes will be on Kenneth Branagh and some of the, the stars there. Um, what's the feeling around at this point? Are there odds on who, who could claim the gongs? Well, certainly uh, Belfast with a tremendously sh strong showing and uh, Kenneth Branagh, not, certainly not his first uh, crack at uh, this ceremony. He has been nominated uh, many times in the past and uh, this film really uh, captivating the Academy voters, certainly a critically acclaimed film. We saw uh, the song from Van Morrison from the movie nominated for uh, best song. So I think uh, Belfast is certainly one of the uh, favorites for best picture, along with, of course, The Power of the Dog, another movie uh, that is uh, a favorite among audiences, is certainly uh, the movie Dune, uh, that, that modern remake of the science fiction classic. That was a hit, unlike most of these movies, a hit uh, both at the box office as well as among the voters here on Hollywood's Biggest Day. Yeah, how has streaming changed um, the Oscars? And, and in when it comes to the Academy and the idea that it was always, you know, box office and the, the cinematic experience, now people are seeing potential Oscar winners in their homes and that's where they're being viewed for the very first time. Well, that's certainly where most of us have been seeing these movies is at home. The Academy itself still... Uh, I would say does have a bit of a bias towards the theatrical uh, releases, uh, sort of based on its, uh, uh, its, its, its history. But the direction that this is all going has been streaming. We've seen the big studios now uh, have their own streaming services, such as uh, Disney and newcomers to this space, such as Apple. So these are uh, really the, the studios of the future, apparently. Uh, but the Academy still uh, likes to recognize those movies that do have that theatrical run. And uh, no best picture has, as of yet, uh, not been released in theaters, although that's a trend that uh, could change uh, very soon, if, uh, okay. depending on how things go here. Iris Spritzer, thanks for the update from Hollywood there. Um, thank you for joining us. To come to Sandra Mallon. Sandra, on all of this, it's been a great day, really, for the Irish. We haven't fared as well on the nomination front since 2016. Um, and Belfast seems to be, um, you know, the word on everyone's lips. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know what? It's, it's, it is a great day to be Irish, and I hope they're... they're 
celebrating with some champagne, well-deserved tonight, uh, definitely with Kenneth Branagh with his seven nominations. But not only um, did he achieve such a, a high success at the Oscars today, but he also set an Oscars record, a new Oscar record for seven nominations across seven different categories throughout his career. So the previous would have been George Clooney and Walt Disney for six different nominations across six different categories. So on top of everything else, you know, I really hope he's definitely proud of himself tonight yeah. for what the, he's done. The ultimate multitasker. I think we can take a little uh, clip from Belfast now. Your buddy from Belfast, where everybody knows you. Hey, buddy! Your mom's calling you the head! We're looking to cleanse the community a wee bit. You wouldn't want to be the old man out in the street. Touch my family and I'll kill you. And we also saw a glimpse of Jamie Dornan there. He was among those who may be uh, disappointed he didn't receive a nod for Best Supporting Actor. That's right, yeah. And Katrina Balfe also lost out. She was hotly tipped to be yeah. among the nominees for Best Supporting Actress. There was huge disappointment actually today. I, I, we really thought that Katrina Balfe would get that nod and Jamie Dornan as well. Um, although maybe we might see, if they're, they're up for Best Picture, so we might see some vocals and at an after party somewhere with Jamie Dornan anyway. But um, with Katrina Balfe, I was actually really surprised surprised with her but to be fair um, she tweeted out her congratulations to her co-stars and I mean although we were disappointed with her she didn't seem to be disappointed herself being part of such a huge franchise um, and she tweeted out her congrats anyway um, on that front so and then Jamie as well yeah I mean it, it was it was disappointing for her now. yeah and brilliant. for Ruth Negga as well yeah. she, she may have been um, you know looking likely to get a nod there but it didn't go to her this year Jessie Buckley, though, great news for um, a Kerry actress. And we heard from our yeah. dad, I think, earlier on, and he just sounded proud as punch. And it's, they are it's so brilliant news, isn't earth. it? Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant news, Jessie Buckley. I'm very, I'm delighted um, for Jessie now. Uh, and I think, actually, I, I was listening to her parents today on radio, and they just seem such like a lovely family. And I think it really was business as usual. Back to um, filming, I think, tonight, Jessie went back to set. Um, so, uh, but she was definitely, um, I think, I think she was stunned with the hearing the nomination, but she's such a down-to-earth girl, so I'm delighted for her. And and you think that she's going to she stands a good chance of actually winning in this category? I think so. I mean, I know she's up against Kirsten Dunst and Dame Judy Dench, but still, I mean, she could be the dark horse of the category. I would never rule her out at all. Um, I think she does have a, have a serious chance. I'm just happy for her, you know? Uh, and of course, the Oscars, they're back this year. There's going to be the red carpet that everyone missed so much over the past couple of years. But really, that's very important, isn't it, for this award ceremony? It's all about the pomp and ceremony. Yeah, that's true. I mean, for the last two years, we've really missed out on all that kind of um, stuff. And if there's no kind of fanfare going on about it, you sort of forget and that it's even on. So this year, I'll be really looking forward to seeing a lot of the, the designers and what they... I think they'll really go extra above and beyond as well to create some stunning pieces for the red carpet. So it's not just the winners that we'll be talking yeah, about. Yeah, so obviously with the COVID restrictions in place last year, it was a ratings flop. Yeah. They'll be hoping to turn all of that around this Big year. time. As well. And I think they're trying to get a younger audience as well uh, to tune in, to watch it. So they're really, they'll push the boat out, I'd say, this year.
Okay, well, best of luck to all the Irish nominees. Um, I have to see Belfast. I've heard great things about it. Um, I, but looking forward to actually seeing a lot of uh, the nom nominations that are out there. But that is it from us. My thanks to Sandra, uh, to all our panellists tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.